It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to the fourth of our World in Specials. This week we're coming to you in place of money talks as we look ahead to issues that will be shaping the world economy in 2018. We'll be investigating the future of American business. This year, companies will still find it incredibly difficult to escape politics. How Brexit looks from China. Brexit is about just uncertainty. People are concerned that that we're not moving more quickly. What 2018 has in store for developing markets. You know, there's always a, a risk, of course, with making big predictions like this. But of course, given that this is the name of the show, I'll I will stick my neck out. And why bigger might be better for the car industry. It might seem odd that sports car makers want to make SUVs, and there's a simple reason for that. People want to buy SUVs. But first, I should introduce my co-host across the table for this trip around the world in the year to come. Daniel Franklin is editor of our World in 2018 supplement. Hello there, Daniel. Hello, Anne. And welcome back. Now, why do you think the economic lens is one that's so important, particularly as we look into 2018 as opposed to at any other given time? Well, it's always important uh, for itself, for the well-being of people. It colours how people experience the year ahead. It also affects so much else. It affects politics. It feeds into elections. It feeds into the state of public opinion. Uh, And it affects policies too. So I think all round, the trends in the world from place to place, but perhaps particularly in America, uh, still the world's biggest economy, are hugely important. And I'm curious as to the kind of stories on business and finance that you feel you can look to for something that is going into the year ahead. I understand we take a bit of a risk sometimes with politics. I take a risk on political predictions myself. Business and finance, it, it sounds a lot harder to guess what might happen. Well, the markets are always hard to predict. And if I was absolutely brilliant at predicting them, I might not be a journalist. I might be uh, doing something very different. Uh, But I think that uh, you try to look at what you see as big trends in technology and how that will move um, uh, business. You try to see the intersection between business and politics, which is, I think, particularly engaging in in the year ahead. Businesses are having to become more and more political. And what about Asia? You and I got our dual backpacks together. We went to Asia at the the end of of the year, partly because we were looking into what was happening, but also we wanted to take the temperature in Asia. And did you think that the mood in the economies was different or perhaps more optimistic than in 2017? I think it's calmer. I think the worries about a Chinese um, hiccup have have subsided. Uh, I think there's a, a sort of confidence that China will carry on powering ahead. Well, we'll be delving deeper into Asian economies a bit later when we take the temperature in Shenzhen. But first, it's time to cast our eyes back to one of last year's predictions and ask the brave predictor to step up to the plate again. That's right. Patrick Fowles, our Schumpeter columnist, stuck his neck out last year with a prediction on American business. We sent our business and finance editor, Andrew Palmer, to see how his foresight fared and to hear his new prediction for 2018. Hello, Patrick. Hi, Andrew. 
Uh, you predicted last year that uh, 2017 would see the end of a golden age of uh, deal making. How did that prediction pan out? Well, in the US, which is the, the world's largest market for deal making, it, it largely was a lacklustre year for deal making. So total volumes of mergers and acquisitions in 2017 were down by about 16% and, and well off the highest levels that they've achieved in the past. Uh, although the overall numbers were down, we still saw some pretty big deals last year, particularly right at the end of it. So Fox and Disney, Westfield being sold, Aetna and, and CBS. So it still feels in some ways as though the tectonic plates are moving, that there's still there's still room for very big deals to happen. Yeah, I would highlight two trends for this year in terms of deal making. First, as you mentioned, is is the rise of deals in which incumbent companies seek to adjust to a world in which tech firms uh, have, have a bigger influence. So, for example, the pharmaceutical distributor and retailing and insurance merger that you mentioned is in many respects an attempt to shore up the company before Amazon enters as the drugs uh, selling business in in the US. And likewise, the Disney Fox deal is an attempt by these two sort of grand old ladies of of the American content industry to get stronger in the face of competition from video streaming services like Netflix and Amazon again. So one big trend uh, for for deal making, I think, is the kind of tech defensive deal, trying to defend yourself against Silicon Valley. The other trend, which I, I, I think will probably pick up is is European consolidation. Corporate Europe is very subscale now compared to big American companies. European companies are just too small. And a better political mood and a better economic outlook in Europe may lead to the creation of more European champions. Okay, and just to, to finish up with some thoughts on the on the year ahead. Firstly, on sentiment, what's your sense of the boardroom mood in America, particularly in the wake of Republican tax cuts? The mood here is is euphoric, and and there's a strange contrast between the kind of deeply messed up, uh, pessimistic, and pretty depressing world of politics in the US and and the economic scene where companies have an economy that's growing reasonably, that doesn't seem to be a a real sign that interest rates are about to jack up or that wages are about to spiral out of control, hurting margins. So the mood mood is uh, pretty optimistic uh, here uh, in, in America, Inc. And lastly, what's your one big prediction for 2018? Well, what you saw in 2017 is is corporate America have a disastrous flirtation with politics. So lots of companies signed up to President Trump's sort of advisory councils, uh, some for selfish reasons, others because they thought it was their patriotic duty. And uh, by the end of the year, all of those companies had had left those panels. Uh, They found it too controversial. My prediction is that uh, this year, People will, companies will still find it incredibly difficult to escape politics in America. The culture wars over gender, over ethnicity, over conduct uh, are moving from Hollywood and, and um, uh, academia into the business world. And people running companies are going to have to be hypersensitive and aware of that. And the tech clash, similarly, uh, is gradually building steam. And Silicon Valley, having had a pretty easy ride politically, uh, continues to face a, a, a much more hostile political environment. Well, I'm sure we'll be back to check up on your forecast this time next year. In the meantime, Patrick, thank you very much. Thank you. Our thanks to Andrew Palmer and Patrick Fowles there.
Now, America has been important for so long as a global economic engine, but increasingly that is changing. Emerging markets, and Asia in particular, are for many where the action is. Daniel? Well, I think that's absolutely right, but it's also very palpable. I think when we were in China this time, we felt not just the, the size and the influence and the strength of the Chinese economy, you know, cities that have grown up from virtually nothing to uh, 10, 20 million people uh, over a generation, but also the innovation you feel happening around you, the new business models, the sense that this isn't just a, an, a business taker uh, in, in nowadays, it's a business maker and a business innovator. And there's an immense energy, isn't there, even on the streets, as we usually had jet lag on our trip. I think I once went out at 5 a.m. and then at 5.30, it was as if the whole economy of the city we were in just seemed to come pulsing into life. And the sheer weight of numbers that you have in Asia is, of course, one thing that's very striking. It's a huge share of the, of the world's population, great numbers of increasingly middle class people who are uh, big consumers for the world's output and their output. Well, to find out more, we called our emerging markets editor, Simon Cox, in Hong Kong and two of his colleagues from our China bureaus to hear their thoughts on what the year has in store. This is Simon Cox, emerging markets editor for The Economist magazine based in Hong Kong. Well, I focus on emerging markets uh, globally and uh, a number of them uh, face uh, elections that could be quite consequential, uh, particularly in Latin America. I think we'll be choosing six presidents in Latin America in 2018, including Brazil and Mexico, the two biggest economies uh, in Latin America. And in both of those economies, uh, the elections are uncertain and there's quite a lot at stake. Apart from that, the the two big uh, fears hanging over emerging markets are the familiar ones. Uh, They're that the Federal Reserve in the United States might have to tighten uh, more quickly than we now expect, uh, and that China might slow uh, more sharply than we now think. Both of those fears have been hanging over emerging markets for some time, uh, and will continue to do so in 2018, I think. I'm Simon Rabinovich, Asia Economics Editor with The Economist, based in Shanghai. Asia is in a, in a very good position right now, and, and the general expectation is that that position, if anything, will be strengthened by the end of 2018, uh, both because of growth within the region uh, and also because of the big globally synchronized upturn. As ever, there are question marks about the sustainability of uh, both the Japanese recovery uh, as well as the Chinese upturn. But right now, certainly the, the bulls have the, have the momentum. Stephanie Studer, senior China business correspondent for The Economist. Eyes will continue to remain glued on the tech space in China um, as they are in the West in 2018. Um, We've seen lots of innovation coming out of Chinese startups and, of course, the established giants. They're known as the, the BATs. That stands for Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. They have, however, christened a new tech trinity, TMD, uh, and that's Totiao, Meituan and Didi. That new generation of rising stars is into things like ride-hailing services and news aggregation. So I suppose one question to ask in 2018 is, can they match what the BATs have achieved? Well, I hope that emerging economies will continue to do well uh, in 2018. I don't personally think the Fed will have to tighten monetary policy too much. I also think that emerging economies have become less sensitive to the Federal Reserve. Uh, They've enjoyed uh, more currency flexibility. Many of them seem to have got inflation under control. So even if the Fed does have to tighten, central banks and emerging economies don't necessarily have to follow suit. Um, I also think that China should be able to grapple 
with its debts without too sharp a slowdown. So my hope is that emerging economies will continue to do well in 2018. However, I have to say that the markets seem to expect emerging economies to do wonderfully uh, in 2018, and I'm not sure I'd go that far. So I think uh, emerging economies will do well, perhaps not quite as well as markets now seem to have priced in. You know, there's always a a risk, of course, with making big predictions like this. But of course, given that this is the name of the show, I will stick my neck out. And my big prediction for this year uh, is that uh, although it's fun at this time of year to to think about and to contemplate, you know, the big disruptive things that might happen, the potential Chinese-American trade war, the potential for Abenomics going off the rails or for the Chinese slowdown, uh, you know, really turning into a, a much more serious one. My big prediction for this year is that as far as the Asian economy is concerned, it's actually going to be a relatively boring one. Uh, a year in which uh, overt trade conflict is actually avoided. It's going to be a good positive year for companies and for economies and not the most exciting year for headlines. Consumer concerns about data privacy grow among Chinese consumers and the reason why that's so important in China is that big tech companies find that the data they're able to acquire easily from its 700 million internet users is extremely valuable. But we have seen just in recent months some small-scale backlash against this. If that grows in 2018, as I expect it might, that will have a, a serious impact on Chinese companies. Simon Cox, Simon Rabinovich and Stephanie Studer there. Daniel, you and I were just in China. Uh, We also went to a world in in gala in Hong Kong and to some conferences. My feeling was that China is more comfortable than it was at the forefront of the world economy. What did you make of the mood out there, and particularly when it came to looking at the year ahead? Uh, I think I certainly agree with that. and, And there is a sense, I think, coming off not just what's happening in the economy, but also the political reality of an extremely powerful Xi Jinping, fresh from his party uh, congress. So there is a sense that China is now rivaling America in all sorts of ways in the world. And on the economic front, at the corporate level, I think you feel that with these giant Chinese companies that are uh, going out into the world and becoming global presences now, they have a big advantage just in the sheer numbers of Chinese consumers and the amount of data that is generated by those consumers in using the products. And that gives a terrific strength to Chinese companies using that data where data is, in in a sense, the economic fuel of the future. Well, to find out more, we went to the Britain-China Business Council conference in Shenzhen, one of China's fastest growing cities. Somewhere we're going to be hearing a lot more about in the future, I suspect, especially as links with growing global economies like China's become more important to Britain in the post-Brexit landscape. We caught up in Shenzhen with a number of investors and movers and shakers doing deals, selling their wares. But I started by talking to Duncan Innes Kerr. He's Regional Director Asia for the Economist Intelligence Unit. So Shenzhen is... is Certainly one aspect of the way in which uh, China is is putting the squeeze on Hong Kong from a competition perspective, with Shanghai obviously also uh, being seen as a major competitor from China. According to Duncan, Shenzhen is definitely a city to watch. Shenzhen's clearly an economically very dynamic city, and within the Chinese context, they're seen as being one of the the bolder 
uh, reformers and, uh, and come up with quite experimental uh, policies. For the Chinese, Shenzhen is also a platform for investing outside China. Angelica Anton is a founding partner of Silk Ventures, which is a government-backed venture capital, Chinese government-backed, that is, venture capital fund looking to invest abroad. Shenzhen definitely provides a scale that companies in the UK and Europe don't have in their local markets, uh, don't have locally. It also has um, good talent, uh, some of which has been uh, uh, trained in some of the largest uh, corporations in the world, which, uh, which have their home here in Shenzhen, the Huawei, Tencent and, and ZTE. When you think Tencent, um, you know, the big tech companies are based here, how has that affected how the city operates and what it offers? I think it's definitely contributed to the transformation of Shenzhen um, and the effect is somehow similar to what uh, Facebook or Apple created in Silicon Valley. It increased rent, it increased, uh, it obviously attracted talent into the city. So you see similar uh, consequences here in Shenzhen as well. With Brexit accelerating, the importance of Chinese investment in the UK is stepping up. Also in Shenzhen was Catherine McGuinness, head of policy for the Corporation of the City of London. There's huge potential here in Shenzhen, a place of fantastic innovation, um, companies which are growing uh, exponentially. Such uh, potential for the UK uh, if we want to help China develop its uh, international links. Look at Huawei and the jobs that it is creating in the UK, whether for us in the city, running its corporate treasury there, or in other parts of the UK with its factories, with its apprenticeship programmes. It's having a direct impact on jobs in, in, in the UK. There will be no fundamental change. That's John Mew. I'm the COO of ABP Royal Albert Dock, and I'm here to promote London to all the business in Shenzhen. Brexit is about just uncertainty, but if you look at what UK are offering to the economic, to the business world, would remain the same language, law, and a very mature financial system in there. If you're a Chinese investor, what worries you most? I mean, you, you talk about getting on with it. Is that certainty more important than outcome, or does outcome matter more than certainty? Yes, it's the uncertainty that we're getting messages about. Catherine McGuinness again. People are concerned that, that we're not moving, that UK and EU27 are not moving more quickly. Uh, people are concerned about what repercussions that might have. But I have to say, what is refreshing about being here is that people do see that uh, those special uh, fundamentals that the UK has to offer uh, will uh, remain and that gives us something, uh, a strong platform to build on for the future. For Angelica Anton, Brexit hasn't taken Britain off the list of potential investment destinations. I think Britain continues to offer opportunities to Chinese investors and overall China as a country does not interfere in other countries' political um, affairs so uh, it's just not a matter of concern. But as long as Brexit remains uncertain, investors are likely to be cagey with the British economy. So what might post-Brexit Britain offer to Chinese investors to keep them coming and persuade a few more of them? Rupert Gaither is head of Invest UK. What they're really after um, is access to technology or access to hard assets in what is considered a very safe location. I think one of the things that the Chinese have picked up in a way perhaps even that the British media hasn't picked up, is when you get direction from government, they really listen in a way perhaps British investors don't. So, for example, the Prime Minister has said repeatedly, and this was backed up in the budget, that they will build a million new homes over the next, affordable homes over the next 10 years. Now, everyone in Britain pays lip service to that, 
for the Chinese, listen to it, because a similar statement from the Chinese government would carry through with it a whole deal of policy that would make it happen. Do you think it's going to come as a bit of a disappointment that a lot of government pledges don't get fulfilled in countries like Britain? Well, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy because the reason a lot of pledges don't get fulfilled is because absence of the right capital. There's a lot of things is uncertain, especially in this time of the world. We don't know what's happening with Korea. We don't know what's happened with our Trump. I don't think Brexit is, is that important in the China market. There are more important things for them to think about, and I don't think it, regi it registers in the consideration list. John Mew there, summing it up. So, Anne, do you think at the end of it all, uh, it's a case of me thinks he doth protest too much, that, that they, much as British boosters claim that uh, doesn't matter at all about Brexit or Brexit's great opportunity, actually they're deep down quite worried about it and that's why they feel they have to go out and sell it so hard. Well, I think there is a sense that Britain does need to sell quite hard in Asia, but I wonder if that would have been different even if we had stayed in the EU. You know, that was a direction of travel. The context is perhaps that there's more of a timeline on it and they'd better get their marching boots on, which is why we kept bumping into so many investors on our travels. Others perhaps laid more emphasis on the fact that they just felt confused and that Beijing wanted to know, roughly speaking, what was going on and when it was likely to happen. One thing that did struck me that I pricked up my ears on was the selling of Britain as the end of the so-called Belt and Road, uh, that, that it was the terminus, if you like, and Britain trying to position itself as having a bit of a special place in that regard. That, I think that was is interesting. Something, that's something we're going to hear more of, at least in s selling UK PLC to the Chinese. So finally, before the new year, we heard our obituarist Anne Rowe talking about the death of a certain kind of car, a vehicle for nostalgia in her case. But for the car industry, the concern is less what's dying than what's in the queue to take its place. Simon Wright is our motoring correspondent. He's pretty sure that he knows what's revving in the wings. My big prediction for 2018 is that sales of SUVs and their close cousins, such as pickup trucks and compact utility vehicles, will overtake sales of the traditional car worldwide for the first time. For car makers, SUVs are something of a boon. They're more profitable than uh, standard cars, saloon cars and hatchbacks. Consumers seem to like SUVs for uh, several reasons. I think firstly they give an impression of safety. They're, they're bigger and bulkier than ordinary cars. That might not be the case, but at least that's the impression that's given. Introducing the all-new Buick Enclave, tomorrow's SUV for today's family. Consumers don't seem to be too worried that, on average, SUVs use slightly more fuel than uh, conventional vehicles. It's not as bad as it used to be, but certainly they're less environmentally friendly. They take up more road space, quite apart from anything else. They use bigger tyres and they use more, more raw materials to make them. Red dress, hell yes. Hashtag bless, pure power, rush hour. Damn, I need a cold shower. The triumph of the SUV may already have happened. In 2017, Ferrari said that it would be making a sport utility-like vehicle. They're going to call it a Ferrari utility vehicle, but that may not fool anyone. But we have already seen far more. It's not just Ferrari. Other fancy car makers are piling in too. Lamborghini's Urus also comes out this year. Urus is a super SUV because it's a super sport car in a different configuration. It might seem odd that sports car makers want to make SUVs and there's a simple reason for that. 
people want to buy SUVs. I think it's probably with some reluctance that Ferrari is making an SUV. They always in the past said that they wouldn't do so. But the lure of the profits from SUVs is just too great. So, Anne, I don't think you're going to catch me in an SUV in 2018. How about you? I've had so many children that my cars have had to get bigger and uglier. And I fondly remember the days, which now seem like like my distant youth, whizzing about in a very nice little, neat, reasonably kind of ergonomic BMW. And now I've got this tank with violins and suitcases permanently in the back. Well, you are the global trend. We hope you've enjoyed this look at the world's economy in 2018. You can also listen back to Money Talks from two weeks ago if you missed it, where a few more of our business and finance team gave some predictions for the year. And if you have predictions of your own, do get in touch at Economist Radio on Twitter or via email to radio at economist.com. And there was one thing you wanted to mention, I think, Daniel, about that. Yes, some of our listeners rightly got in touch to point out a mistake I'd made uh, last time in talking about the dreamers as people who were born in the US. Of course, that would make them uh, US citizens, whereas, in fact, they were people who came there as children. Thank you for keeping us on our toes. And Daniel and I will be back with two more specials at the beginning of February to finish our Hitchhiker's Guide to the Year to Come. Don't miss them. For now, though, goodbye. In London and from Asia, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.